0: Good evening. Good to see everybody out here tonight. Hope that we can talk about some things that will be helpful to you in your Christian walk. Uh, Wednesday night, Ronald Strong gave a class on Psalm 52, and I felt it my responsibility as his son-in-law to get up here. And No, I'm not going to issue any corrections. I, I do that to scare Ronald for fun. Um, Ronald taught a class on Psalm 52 on Wednesday, and it, he talked about how it dealt with a story from 1 Samuel, a story about David approaching Ahimelech to get the showbread out of the uh, tabernacle at the time as he was on the run from Saul. And all that kind of transpired with that, with Doeg, the Edomite, and he did a great job with it. Uh, I wish I could say it inspired me to do this sermon. I'd already been planning on it, but I'll say it gave me courage to do this sermon because, as Ronald put it, I like the words that he used. He said, that's just a morally complex story. He said, there's a lot of things going on there, a lot of faults, a lot of sin happening. Um, And to parse through it can be difficult. You know, we again, sometimes we say, well, the Bible's really easy to understand. If you just read the the Bible with an open mind and an open heart, uh, those who have studied it for years and years can tell you it certainly is not always easy to read the Bible, to understand the accounts, especially in the Old Testament, and the things that go on and to understand what we're supposed to get out of it can be very difficult. And Ronald uh, did a wonderful job with Psalm 52, and so I'm going to do perhaps the foolhardy thing of picking another morally complex story of the Old Testament and hoping to give you some kind of frame of reference about it. Tonight we're going to be talking about the account of Genesis chapter 38 and I've called it a twisted yarn because as far as stories go this one is pretty twisted. There's a lot of strange things that happen in this story It's very likely, if you've ever tried to read the Bible in a year, that you've been working your way through Genesis, which is uh, to an extent easier than Exodus, which is to a far extent easier than Leviticus. But you're reading through Genesis, and you're kind of following along with the story. You get to Genesis 38, and you say, I have no idea what to do with any of that. That just seems weird. That seems like a strange story. I just really don't know what I'm supposed to get out of that, what God's trying to tell me through this story and I don't claim to have all the answers about it tonight you may have never heard this story before but you will you'll hear all of it tonight you're gonna hear it a couple times and I at least hope that by the end you will have inter- internalized this account in God's Word regardless of whether I can shine any light on it for you but we are gonna try to give a few vantage points to look at it from and hopefully we can gain some appreciation for the God that we serve and the grace that he gives to us all when you think about the book of Genesis It's helpful sometimes to kind of divide books of the Bible into a table of contents based on their chapters. Now chapters and verses are things that have been added into the Bible uh, later as a kind of system to help us locate parts of it. I'm very thankful for chapters and verses. Uh, But if we laid out the table of contents of Genesis, you would note a few interesting things. You would see that we start the Bible with the creation of the world as we know it. We would follow it with what I've just titled Adam, Eve, and children. We have the story of the first man and woman, their fall, the children they had, and kind of the continuation of mankind on from the Garden of Eden. You would come to chapters 6 through 10 with the flood and Noah being saved through water, as Brother John mentioned in his sermon this morning. Chapter 11 has the Tower of Babel, but after that, Genesis largely deals with four men, really. Four different men. And you see large amounts of chapters of the book kind of put into talking again about Abraham, his sojourn to the land of promise. You have a couple of chapters about Isaac. It's interesting to note that Isaac really only gets a brief mention. You have a few chapters about Jacob, who then becomes Israel. And then really the largest section, if you will, at the end of the book deals with Joseph. Joseph, the son, the firstborn son of Jacob's beloved Rachel. And Joseph is going to be God's instrument to save his people. But it's literally one chapter into the Joseph narrative that we come across this story in Genesis 38 that I would just describe as the story of Judah and Tamar. It's very abrupt, it happens suddenly. It kind of happens, then you move on from it. It really interrupts the narrative of Joseph, uh, kind of barges its way in there. And again, as a reader, you're kind of left going, well, why is this here? Why is this here in the middle of the account? So if we were going to look at the context, as we've already mentioned, the context is the story of Joseph and the way that Joseph is going to be used to redeem God's people out of, again, certain death uh, in the famine in the land of Canaan. Now, the funny thing about this or the ironic thing is that Joseph is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Uh, That's not to say I don't, just imagine or I'm not foolish enough to say everybody here certainly knows all the ins and outs of the story of Joseph I'm not claiming that you should but for most people, if you've grown up in Bible classes, you've heard the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors. It's been popularized even in larger society. There's been musicals written about it, all of these different things, movies, I'm sure, lots and lots of children's Bible story books. Uh, but again, the problem with that is these stories can become fantastical to us. They just become children's stories uh, that don't have a lot of bite to them. Of course, we know in the story that Joseph is the favored son of his father and that Joseph has dreams about the way that he's going to to kind of rise above everyone in his family and position, and that they would bow down to him. Because of that, his brothers want to kill him. His father sends him out to his brothers in the field, and they make a plan to say, hey, let's just kill him and throw him in a pit and be done. Then we'll see how his dreams do then once he's dead. Reuben, the oldest brother, uh, scared of the fact that they're really going to do this, says, no, instead, here's what we'll do. We'll just throw him into a pit over here, For a little while and in Reuben's mind he thinks I'm going to come back and save him later right I'm just going to kind of do this to placate them well they throw him in a pit and then Reuben goes off somewhere else and suddenly some slave traders come by and it just so happens the brothers get a really bright idea in their head but not just the brothers in fact it says in Genesis 37 so Judah said to his brothers now that's important because Judah is the main character of our story tonight Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. And his brothers listened. What a sweet brother, right? He is our kin. We don't want to be mean to him, so we'll just sell him into slavery. And that's Judah's hand as he sells Joseph off. They see him go away. Reuben comes back later and says, what happened to him? Where's he at? Not knowing again that they had done this and sold him into slavery. And the farce continues from there. But it's in this context that we come immediately into Genesis chapter 38. Again, almost immediately we're thrown into it. And so I'm going to read the entirety of Genesis 38 to you right now. Now, three things before I start. Number one, I time myself I can do this in about four minutes. So when you hear the whole chapter, you think, oh, goodness, we're going to be here forever. I'm going to try to make it snappy, number one. Number two, I've emphasized and underlined certain things in this just for emphasis, not because the Bible does it. That's on me. Number three, this chapter has some sensitive content in it and i'm not reading it to be edgy or to try to get a rise out of you or anything like that i'm not going to linger on it i'm just letting you know there are things in this account that are strange to read about in the bible and yet they are there in god's word so let's read the account together and then let's talk a little bit about it it came to pass at that time that judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain adullamite whose name was hira And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son, and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezab when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted. And he went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite, and it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then she gave them, Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend the Adolamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked them into that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass, about three months after, that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine who the whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. You with me so far? sticking with me on the chapter, right? Here's the conundrum of this chapter. Why is the story of Judah and Tamar included, and what does it mean? You've heard the story now. The question is, why is it here in the Bible? Well, the first answer I can give you is the easiest, and maybe the most sure answer I can give you. The reason the story of Judah and and Tamar is in the Bible is because God wanted it to be. The Holy Spirit does not waste his breath. We don't have things in the Bible that we're not supposed to have. We have exactly what God wants us to have. And so we don't need to lose any sleep over going, why is this strange story included? It's here because God intended for us to have it. But that doesn't make it any easier when we're trying to figure out what to do with this account. The first thing we might ask is, well, what's the moral of the story? It's one that would be kind of hard to suss out, right? There's some pretty easy stories in the Bible when it comes to figuring out the moral of them. I used to watch VeggieTales when I was a kid, and they always had a Bible story and a nice moral to go along with it for you to learn. I never saw VeggieTales on this one. I'm just going to say it. There wasn't one that took this one and kind of simplified it down with an easy moral, right? What is it? It's hard to know. Well, what about the application of the story? It's hard to really apply it, right? Something about prostitution, lever at marriage, right? Uh, you know, giving pledges. There's not a lot of applicable things for us in our everyday life when it comes to this story. So maybe the person just kind of throws up their hands and just says, well, it's just here because it happened, right? God wrote it down because it happened, and so that's why it's here. Well, there's a few things that are, that are wrong with that. One is this. I think that some people think the Bible and the Holy Spirit is kind of like a video camera, He was set up there, and as things happened and transpired, they were just written down verbatim as they happened, and then you went on with your life. Well, the the fact of the matter is, as we look at the accounts of the Old Testament, there's lots and lots that we are not told. There's lots and lots that aren't given to us, because again, if you were going to write the events of every single day and every single happening in the life of Jacob, or Joseph, or Moses, or any of these people, the books, again, would fill an entire room, not just the small Bible you can hold in your hand. God gave us specific things, not a camcorder book. The things that he gives us are there because they're important, and they're supposed to be there. Well, someone could say, well, maybe it's not a camcorder, but what this account is doing is it's just showing us sin, It's showing us the sin of Judah, and it's showing us that Jacob's sons had fallen into sin after what they did with Joseph. Well, I think that's part of it for sure. But at the same time, the Bible does this a lot more quickly. For instance, we know that Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, was also guilty of sin. You may remember that it notes that he slept with his father's concubine. He slept with his father's wife. Do you want to see what amount of time the Bible gives to that understanding? Look at this. In Genesis 35... Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now, the sons of Jacob were 12, and it just passes right over it, right? It's literally one verse that's spent. We don't have any dialogue between Reuben and Bilhah. We're not told any of the ins and outs of this rendezvous, anything that happens with it. It just passes over it very quickly. And so, again, I think it's very important. There's a reason why we're given such a lengthy account when it comes to the story of Judah and Tamar. One thing I will say with this story that's helpful for me is this. When it comes to studying the Bible... Bible Bible study itself is like digging down to the bottom of a well that opens up into a bigger well that opens up into a bigger well and the more you learn the more you realize what you got a lot left to learn there's a lot more to understand the more that you learn but as we do that, sometimes our desire is to take out a magnifying glass and go up to the Bible and just look at it as, as close in as we can see it to try to understand. And we need to do that. We need to get into the Greek. We need to understand all of these things in theology and understand it on the, the most minute level. But sometimes we miss in the Bible, when we study that way. You've heard the phrase before, we miss the forest for the trees, right? With a story like this, there's a lot of different elements going on. But as we try to understand it sometimes it all just blends together for us. We say I don't I don't see the point of this story there's just a lot going on and and again we miss the forest the big picture because we're too distracted by all the trees that we're looking at and so in four slides if you'll stick with me again four slides you've heard the story now I want to briefly recap it the summarized version the cliff notes version if you will maybe you use some of those back in school here's here's the compact version of the Judah and Tamar story here's what happened First, Judah marries a Canaanite and bears three sons. Now, if you read the Bible, you know that usually an Israelite marrying a Canaanite is what? It's a red flag. That's a red flag right at the start of the story. But he marries a Canaanite and he bears three sons. And then he takes Tamar as a wife for his oldest son. After that, Tamar's husband, Ur, is put to death. God strikes him down because of his wickedness. We're getting a little clue into the father that Judah was. What about his sons? They weren't good people. So wicked that God would actually strike them dead on the spot. Judah then commands Onan, his second son, to sire a son for his brother. This was called leveret marriage. They practiced it under the law of Moses later. But even here it was understood that the brother would give a child to the wife so that that line could continue in the name of the brother. And without going into gruesome details, Onan is a very selfish person. He wants Tamar for one thing. He's not interested in giving her a child. He's not interested in being responsible for her or any children they bear. He wants her for one thing. And because of that, God strikes him dead too. Judah then deceitfully withholds his youngest son from Tamar. He says, hey, she's a black widow. She's eaten through two of my sons. I'm not going to give her a third one. And he tells her to go as a widow to her father's house. Well, it's after this that Judah's wife dies, and it says he is comforted. Tamar sees and hears that this has happened, and she perceives that she has been cheated by Judah on not receiving Shelah as her husband. And so Judah goes to Timnah, and Tamar knows exactly what to do. When she hears where he's going, she goes, I know what I'm going to do. And so she poses as a harlot, and Judah solicits her. That says something about Judah's character, doesn't it? That she knows if I dress as a, as a harlot, as a prostitute, and I sit in this spot and he goes by, he won't be able to help himself. That's just the kind of man he was, and she knew it. As a pledge for sending her a kid, a, a young goat, Judas gives her three items. She says, you're going to give me a goat. Well, I need a pledge that you're going to do it. And so he gives her three items. He gives her his signet, his cord, and his staff. Well, after this meeting, Tamar conceives, and she returns to her father's house. Judah sends the goat to retrieve his pledge, and yet Tamar's nowhere to be found. And so Judah says, I'll just let her keep it. Just let her keep these things. Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant, and he says, burn her. Bring her out and let's burn her Ride right here for her harlotry. Tamar sends the three items to Judah to identify who the father of her child is. The father of my child is the man that these belong to. And Judah says, she's been more righteous than I. I've been unrighteous in this situation. Tamar gives birth to two twin boys, Zerah and Perez. And we see that the midwife ties a thread to breaching Zerah's wrist as he comes out. And then Perez pops out, bursts out. Ahead of his brother. That's the story, kind of in a nutshell, and it's kind of a, a little bit more of a zoomed back look at the things that happen. If we were going to look at the story in this case, all these themes would start to pop out at us themes that come from here in the Bible and also other places in the Bible, dealing with. The death of sons and the death of your wife, the the losing of your family, the birth of twins, the idea of a younger bursting forth and supplanting the older, ideas of grief, leverage, marriage, all of these things that we could look at in different portions of the Bible, all themes that we could tie back to, and there's a lot that could be said. But for the rest of our time tonight, I just want to give you a handful of angles to look at this story from that give you just a little bit of grounding to help you understand where it lies in Scripture here. I think the best way to do that is to look at Genesis 38 and kind of put two arrows out beside it and look at what happens immediately before this text and after this text. If we were going to go on to Genesis chapter 39, we would read in in addition to, more, the account of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You remember that when Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt, he was sold into the uh, stewardship of the uh, captain of the guard, Potiphar. He was made steward over his house. He did a great job. He was very successful at that work, but he was also good-looking. The Bible notes Joseph was a handsome man. Potiphar's wife decided that she wanted to have a relationship with Joseph. But it notes in the text, it says... Uh, His master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Compare that to the scripture above. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. He turned to her at the roadside. Isn't it interesting? The very next chapter, we see Joseph put into a sexually compromising situation. And what does he do? He resists temptation. He's not tempted the way that Judah is. And so in that way, this account gives us a comparison between the persons of Judah and Joseph. Joseph was a righteous man, one of the most righteous men in the entirety of the Bible. Judah was not. You can see that throughout the text. Judah was a sinner, and he sinned often. He was not a good father. He was not a good father-in-law. He did all of these things, and again, he stands in stark contrast to the person of Joseph in the text. But if we went back the other way and we went back to Genesis chapter 37, we would remind ourselves again of the account of Joseph being sold into slavery. I didn't mention that after Joseph was sold into slavery and Reuben came back and wrung his hands and said, what are we going to do? The brothers understood that they would have to concoct a lie to tell their father. For Jacob to believe that something had happened to Joseph, they couldn't tell him they sold him into slavery. so They had to say that they killed him. And so they took a young goat they killed it, and they they got its blood, and they dipped his coat of many colors into that blood and brought it back to their father. Note what they said here, and I've I've switched the ESV because the language here is important, going back to the original language. It says here in the bottom one, They sent the robe to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Note the words there. They sent the robe, and they asked their father, Please identify. But you remember in our text that it was Tamar that sent word to her father-in-law and said, please identify who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Isn't that interesting? On one hand, Judah's is involved in this deception. He's involved in a lie involving a father believing that his son is dead. And then in this chapter, he loses two of his sons to real death. And then at the end of the chapter, he sent these items and told, please identify them. It's kind of a lesson, isn't it, in reaping what you sow. Judah sowed deception. He sowed deception with selling his brother into slavery and making his father believe that his beloved son had gone to the grave. And Jacob said, I'll never get over this. I'll never be comforted from this. Judah seemed to have no problem being comforted from all the death in his family. His father uh, was a more virtuous man than he And so we see that the chapter before and after this gives some context to the story. But note this as well. Genesis 34 gives us an interesting insight into four women in the Bible. Genesis 38. Genesis 38 gives us an interesting insight into four women from the Bible. Because first, of course, we have Tamar. Tamar is the woman in this story. She's the daughter-in-law. She's the one that is wronged by Judah and ultimately ends up bearing the twins of his children. But Tamar can remind us of other characters from the Bible. First and foremost, I think, perhaps, would be the character of Rahab. There's some similarities between Tamar and Rahab and some connections. I'll give you just a few of them. One is by marriage because Rahab actually is married to Tamar's great-great-great-great-grandson, several greats. So they're connected by marriage, number one. But number two, they're connected by this theme of harlotry, You have Tamar that appears to be a prostitute. She dresses up as a harlot to try to to trick Jacob. And then you have Rahab, who's known as Rahab the harlot. I've always felt bad for Rahab. That's what she's remembered as. That's her title, right? Rahab the harlot. And yet that's a connection that ties them together. They're also tied together by that scarlet cord, aren't they? Remember in the story, the account, you have the scarlet cord that's wrapped around the child's wrist. And we also know that Rahab, as the inside agent in the walls of Jericho, that hid the spies. They told her, You'll be saved out of the city as long as you hang what from your window? The scarlet cord. It's an interesting connection. The only place in the Bible that you'll find that scarlet cord is is in these two accounts. But we can add another person to that list when we think of Ruth. Ruth has some similarities to Tamar and Rahab. One is that she's a Gentile woman. The text does not explicitly tell us that Tamar was a Gentile, but based on the context, we can imagine that she was because it was in the context of the land of Canaan that Judah took her as he took a wife for himself for a wife for his son. So Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth very likely all were Gentile women married into the Israelite family. But not only that... We also have this theme of redemptive marriage. We know that Tamar, again, was needing a redeemed marriage. She needed to be married to another son so she could have that child that she wanted to bear. Rahab was also part of redemptive marriage. She went from being a harlot to being married into the people of Israel. And we also see that Ruth, as an outsider, as a Moabitess, was married in the people of Israel as well. There's one more connection that we can find between Tamar and Bathsheba. Now, these women have a couple of interesting things and ties between these accounts. One, of course, is accounts that feature sexual misconduct, right? You have, in both accounts, sexual misconduct being appropriated against and involving these women of the stories. But you also have another interesting connection that I just want to bring up, the bath connection. I don't know really what to do with this, but it's there, so I'm going to talk about it. There's an interesting connection between Bathsheba and Genesis chapter 38. In these verses, you note in in Genesis 38 verse 12, it says, Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. Now in 1 Chronicles chapter 2 verse 3, note what it calls her. It says, the sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, these three Bathsheba bore to him. Now Bath literally just means daughter of. But in that account, it calls her Bathsheba. Later in 1 Chronicles 3.5, it says, These were born to David in Jerusalem, these four, the last being Solomon, four by Bathsheba. Who is that? That's Bathsheba. But in this account, it calls her Bathsheba. It gives her the same name a chapter later as was tied to Judah's wife. Again, just an interesting little nugget here that's tying these two accounts together in some way. And so again, as we look at this, we see these four women are tied together into this account. They're kind of all part of scandalous stories, minus Ruth, if you will. Yet this account pulls parts of all of them back to our memory. We're going to come back to them in just a minute. But to to close, really, I want to talk about what I think is the most helpful, totalizing view of Genesis chapter 38. And to me, the theme of Genesis chapter 38 and the scope of all the rest of the book is God's grace toward Judah. The story of Genesis 38 is a story of grace toward the man Judah. I want to focus just for a second on the pledge that Judah gave to uh, Tamar When he was going in to solicit her. You remember that Judah gave her as a pledge his signet, his cord, and his staff. What do these three objects represent? Now I'm not trying to do that in some strange uh, typology way of saying, well the staff represents this and, and the signet represents this. I'm saying in the old world context, these items had a connotation. And they had a connotation of objects of authority. Judah's signet, his stamp, if you will, is what would have been his signature on any document, on any deal, on anything that he would have ever done as a man of business. That signet showed that it was his authority by which he did that. Same thing with his cord, along with the staff. You think of a king with a scepter, with a rod, with a staff. Those are objects that back then would have been tied to authority. What was Judah willing to give those away for? A moment of pleasure. Uh, one chance encounter with a prostitute, he was willing to risk these things and give them away. And the sin of Judah in this way reminds us of the sins of so many of his forebears. I think of you know his uncle Esau, who was again had the birthright. He was the firstborn. He was willing to give it away for a bowl of soup. He was willing to do that. You think about Reuben, again, the prince, the firstborn, who just for a fleeting moment of passion with his father's concubine was willing to lose his birthright as well. And yet as you go down the line, Judah, the sins he commits in this chapter are perhaps worse than anything. The things he does over and over again should leave us wondering. I'm surprised God doesn't strike him dead. Why doesn't God just end his life? Judah should be left with nothing. But isn't it interesting... That by the end of the chapter, those things that Judah had fall right back into his hand. Not only that, he has two children by Tamar. He doesn't end up dead. He he might be ashamed. His pride is hurt. And yet, it's really turned out better for him than we think it should have. I don't know exactly what went through Judah's mind on this occasion. But what I do know is there's really two anecdotes about Judah after this account that happened in the book of Genesis and I think that they're going to close our lesson tonight in a way that'll help us to see this account in full light in Genesis chapter 44 the famine has come to the land of Canaan the land of Egypt Joseph's planning and his dreams he stocked up food so there's enough for the land of Egypt there's enough to sell to all the people of the surrounding lands and Joseph's brothers come to get food for their family back in the land of Canaan Joseph wants to see if his brothers have changed, and so he treats them well, but as they're leaving, he hides a cup, probably a valuable one, in the bag of his younger brother, his true brother from Rachel, Benjamin. And as they leave off, they find this cup. The men find this cup in Benjamin's bag, and they seize these men. They bring them back in to Joseph, and Joseph says, You all have tricked me. I was good to you. I I fed you. I gave you food. You've tricked me, and so I'm going to keep this youngest son here. You go back to your father. He's going to be my servant, Benjamin. And the brothers know Joseph already didn't want, I apologize, Jacob didn't want Benjamin to go down to Egypt. He said, I've already lost Joseph. Now I'm going to lose Benjamin too. And they said, no, you're not going to lose Benjamin. We'll take care of him. Now Joseph says, I'm going to keep Benjamin. It's in that context that Judah went up to Joseph and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. I don't know if it's the events of Genesis 38 that changed Judah's heart. I can't say that for certain. But what I will say is this man seems different than the man we read about in the previous chapter. And in the previous chapters. This was a man that was willing to sacrifice himself to substitute himself in Benjamin's stead and stay behind, because I think by now he knew a thing or two about loss. He knew a thing or two about what he had put his father through, and now he was willing to do that for his sake. The second anecdote is maybe the most surprising, and that's when Jacob is on his deathbed. He's gathered all his sons together, and he's prophesying, if you will, about their future, about where they will be in the grand scheme of things in relation to each other. And it's of Judah, sinful Judah, the one we read about in Genesis 38, that he says the following. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Judah, who was so willing to give away his signet, his cord, and his staff, God says, I give it back to him, and it will not depart. Is that God, the God of all grace, that can take this story, Genesis chapter 38, and the final point on it, as we look at the Bible, is that it's this story. That's a building block as we would think of the fact that and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Note the four women, the four featured in the genealogy. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ this story is a building block in the story of our Lord and Savior. God used a twisted story, a twisted happening like Judah and Tamar to bring about the birth and ultimately our salvation through, through Jesus, his son. The scripture in tonight was from later in the account of Genesis. It was Joseph talking about what had happened to him, but I thought it fit well. What you intended for evil, God used for good. And out of the great evil that Judah propagated, out of all the things that happened in this account, we see it was for our benefit, for our salvation, that these things happened and were recorded. And so as you read your Bible, you may come across an account and go, I have no idea what to do with that. It's confusing. It's controversial. I I just don't know how to make heads or tails of it. Sometimes the answers are hard. You might not always find an answer that satisfies you. But if we study the Bible, we can see that God is good. He's graceful even to sinners. And that he is working for my salvation and your salvation.